Now, I hope you have your Bible today, and if you do, if you would open it, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay, but there should be one on the pew rack in front of you. Take that Bible and open it to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, this is the third week in a row that we have been in Ecclesiastes chapter number three. And as we think about this chapter, there are two great themes. One is time and the other is eternity. Say that with me. One is time and the other is eternity. Let's refresh our memory or maybe you missed the first two weeks and so we want to catch you up. Ecclesiastes chapter three and verse number one. To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. We live our lives and we are living our lives in the time that God has appointed for us. God didn't want you to live during the 1500s or during the 700s or even during the time of Christ. It is God's will that you and I be living at this day and at this time. In verse 11, we saw this last week, just the first sentence. He has made everything beautiful in its time. If you were only going to memorize one sentence out of Ecclesiastes, that would be the one I would recommend. And it's best to learn it like this in little sections. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Let's try it that way. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And as we saw last week, to God, timing is more important than time. Those things in our life that we look at, they're messed up. They're like a big ash heap. We sometimes feel like our life has gone up in smoke. And the scripture says that God has already made those things beautiful. And it's just a matter of time until it becomes beautiful in your experience of it. So it's a tremendous verse. Now, today we shift a gear and we move from time to eternity. And that's what we're thinking about. Now, let's stay in that 11th verse, but look at the second sentence. Also, God has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And so the scripture says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Now, what is eternity? If somebody asks you after the service today, when you hear the word eternity or eternal or everlasting life, what do you think of? I think most of us would say our, the first thing that comes to our mind is it is an amount, of, an amount of unending time. That's what eternal life is, right? It's, it, it never ends. And so I think when we think of eternity, we first think about unending time. And that, that's true. But eternity is also a place. Don't we hear, when, when somebody dies, don't we sometimes say that person has stepped out into eternity? I did two funerals last week for two of our most faithful members, Glenn Tolerine and Larry Showalter, two men I love dearly. And we had a service for Glenn on Wednesday and a service for uh, Larry on Thursday. And we say at that service, they have stepped out into eternity. This week at, on Thursday, Nancy Wright, longtime member of our church, used to be on our church staff. Last week she died. This week we'll have her service. She has stepped out into eternity. What does that mean? It means they have stepped out not only into a realm where there's unending ending time, but they've stepped out into a place. For those who are saved, that place is heaven. For those who are unsaved, that place is hell. But eternity is both a time and a place. And so that's what it means. God has placed eternity in our hearts. Now, what are the ramifications of this? 
When the scripture says God has placed eternity in our hearts, what does that mean to us? It means that since we have eternity in our hearts, we have certain desires, certain longings, certain cravings that can only be met by something that is eternal. That that makes sense. If God has placed eternity in my heart and in my life, now this is true, by the way, for saved people and unsaved people, and this means we'll never die. Good news today, you will never die. And that's what I try to say at every Christian funeral I speak at. This person hasn't died. Their body has died, but inside of that body was an eternal soul. And when the body died, that soul immediately came out of that body and went to be in the presence of God in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I often say at a funeral, I quote out of 2 Corinthians 5, when we live on this earth, we live in these bodies. These bodies are like tents. When our bodies die, we go to heaven, and the Bible says we get a new body, and our new body is called a house. Think about it. For the Christian, when we die, when our bodies die, we move out of our tent and into our house, out of that which is temporary and into that which is eternal in the heavens with God. But whether you're saved or unsaved, on this point, it doesn't matter. God has placed eternity in your heart. You will never die. Think of it this way. Before you were born, there was a time when you did not exist. But there will never be a time when you cease to exist. You will exist forever, somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. Why? Because God has placed eternity in your heart and you will never die. But I'll tell you what else it means. It means that since we have eternity in our heart, we have cravings and desires and longings that cannot be met by earthly things. And this is in a nutshell. The problem with most of us and with most all of the world, everybody is trying to fill what some have called a God-shaped, a God-sized hole in our hearts with something other than God. And that's why people are frustrated and restless and disappointed and going from this to that to the other. And they're trying to fill this longing, this emptiness, but they're trying to fill it with the wrong thing. It can only be filled by God himself. Now, As I was thinking about these desires and cravings, eternity is in our heart. What does that mean? What are these desires? What is it that we're longing for that can't be satisfied or fulfilled or met uh, on the earth? Well, first of all, think about this. We have, as human beings, with eternity in our hearts, we have a desire for perfection. Now, that makes sense to me. Why? Because heaven is a perfect place. And so since that eternity is in our hearts, we were made for heaven. We were made for perfection. Even Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, before they sinned, it was perfect. Sin messed everything up. But we have a desire now to live outside of that. We have a desire to, to, to live in a perfect place. Think about it. We have a desire to live in a perfect house. That's why when you mow your yard and you miss a row, it bothers you. And you go back up and crank the lawnmower and mow that row again, right? Or you paint your house and you miss a spot and it's not perfect, so you get the paint and you paint that over. Why? Because you want it to be perfect and you want it to be right. You want, we, we want to have perfect bodies. I mean, we do. We go to the doctor, we get an annual physical and we get the blood work back and if anything's out of range, we want that to be fixed. Why? We want it to be perfect. We want it to be right. It's a natural desire. We want our relationships to be perfect. We want to be perfect. I can say this. I have a desire to be perfect. Now, I'm not perfect, I'm far from perfect, but I have a desire to never sin. 
And yet sometimes I do. I have a desire to never be rude to anybody. If I ever feel like I've been rude or short or harsh with somebody, that, that really eats at me. I have a desire not to be that way, but sometimes I am. But in our hearts, we have this longing, this craving for perfection, and we're pursuing perfection, and yet we have to accept our own imperfections and our own limitations. I'm working on a booklet right now. We hope to have it ready by June, and I've been editing that booklet for the last few weeks. Takes me about two hours to read through it one time and make the edits. I did it yesterday. Sometimes in the edit, you find it says, we went to their house, T-H-E-R-E. I say, no, we didn't go to, we went to T-H-E-I-R house. I want it to be right. I have a desire for perfection. You know, we say, in the booklet, he don't get it. No, he don't. He doesn't get it. I don't want it to. I want it to sound right. I, we have a desire for perfection, and yet we understand that in this life things are not perfect. Our only, the only perfection we will ever know is Jesus, and the only perfect place will be heaven. I'm curious, how many of you consider yourself to be a perfectionist? Just raise your hand. All right. Well, I don't consider myself to be a perfectionist. I just like everything to be perfect. I'd rather say it that way. And, and, you know, really, the question is not, why am I that way? The question might be, why aren't you that way? Because if you have eternity in your heart, you have, an auto, you have a built-in desire for something that is perfect. And we, we long for that, and we, we yearn for that. And yet we realize that the only perfect person is Jesus, and the only perfect place is heaven. And it's that yearning and longing that pushes us on. Now, not only do we have a desire for perfection, think about this, 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 follows, this follows that. We have a desire for understanding, for complete understanding. In other words, we live in a world where nothing's perfect. People get cancer, people get sick, people die, people have accidents, things happen. People lose their jobs, relationships sometimes don't work out. And we say, no, wait a second, God, I had a desire for perfection. And this isn't perfect. This is imperfect. This isn't good. This is bad. And God, what I need, I need to understand why this has happened. And so sometimes we ask God why. Now, sometimes I'll hear somebody say, and it's almost like they're patting themselves on the back when they say it. They say, well, you know, I just never question God. I never ask God why. Well, I wouldn't pat yourself on the back for that. Why? Because Jesus asked God why. On the cross, as we'll be thinking about as we get closer to Easter, Jesus prayed and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you're going through a difficulty in life, I would encourage you to ask God why, because he might tell you. And it may be some sin in your life, or it may be something that we need to change in, in all of our lives. And so it's good to ask why, but it's not good to keep asking why if God chooses not to tell us. And we have to get to a place where we say, God, I don't understand. You haven't told me. It doesn't make sense. But instead of continuing to ask why, I'm going to choose to trust you right here and right now. We have a family in our church, young couple. And a death notice came through the office a couple of weeks ago, and I'm close to this couple. And so it said that the girl in our church, her stepmother had died. And so I called to inquire about this situation. And when I got her on the phone, I said, look, I just, I'm so, well, first thing it said was her father had died. And then her step, and then I got her on the phone. She said, well, John, let me tell you what all really has happened. I kind of got that messed up. She said, two, day, two or three days ago, my stepmother died. She said she got sick. She was in a hospital in Galveston. It was a surprise that she went down that quickly, but she did have some health issues, so we weren't totally, totally shocked by that. But she said, within 24 hours of my stepmother dying, my father was killed. I said, killed? 
I said, how was he killed? And she began to tell me how he was killed as much as she understood. I said, you gotta be kidding me. I said, within 24 hours, you lost them both and your father was killed like that. And so we talked and I prayed with her and last night I'm home and I've pretty well finished with my sermon in my mind, but I wanted to put some notes on paper. And so I'm thinking about that and I picked up the phone and I called this couple and I said, hey, I'm sorry to bother y'all on a, on a Saturday night at nine o'clock. You're probably out doing something. And she said, John, I'm glad you called. We're just riding back to our house. We've been in Houston eating or whatever they were doing. And I said, well, I have a strange question for you. I said, I'm working on my sermon for in the morning and I'm talking about how when things crazy and bad and difficult happen, we naturally ask God, why, why? God, help me to understand this. And I'm curious, in the last two weeks, have you asked God that question? She said, John, I can't believe the timing of this phone call. She said, as my husband and I are driving back into town from Houston, she said, this is the conversation we're in the middle of right now. Why was my father killed and why was he killed that way? What happened? Why would God have allowed it? She said, I can't believe that you've called. And she said, you know, John, the more I probe into this and the more I research into this and the more I learn details about this and the more I find out, the harder this is for me to accept. And she said, I'm getting to a place now where I'm just ready to say, God, I don't need any more answers. I'm just gonna trust you with what I don't understand. And so, we, we, but we have that desire, God, why? It, it's, it, it is as though we think if God would tell us why our loved one died or why this happened or why, if God would tell us why, then we would have peace in our hearts. Chuck Swindoll, one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard in my life, he said this, peace is not the result of understanding. Peace is the result of trusting God with those things in life that we don't understand. Give you another good quote by Adrian Rogers. You know I love Adrian. And here's what Adrian said about these type of things. Do we have an Adrian quote? Okay. He said this, God has designed life in such a way that it doesn't make sense. Now you think about that. He's, he's drawn it up in such a way that it won't make sense, that things will happen that just won't make sense to us. Why? Because God knew if everything made sense, we wouldn't need faith. We'd just say, well, this happened, I understand. This happened, I understand. This happened, makes sense to me. But notice what he says. God has designed life in such a way that it doesn't make sense. You say, John, is there a biblical teaching on that? Is there a verse on that? There are a lot of them. Look at this reference here out of Isaiah chapter 55 because God is speaking and God said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What is God saying? God is saying to us, you will never be able to crack my mind. You will never be able to know everything I know. My ways are higher, my thoughts are higher, and I have designed life in such a way that it doesn't make sense, and the reason for that is so that you will trust me with the mysteries of life. And yet God's placed eternity in our hearts and we have a desire to understand, but there comes a point we have to lay that desire down. Say, God, I choose to trust you. I'm not gonna keep trying to figure this out. And then think about this. We have a desire also for fulfillment and for satisfaction in life. Isn't that true? Isn't that natural? That in life we wanna be fulfilled and we wanna be satisfied and we wanna be happy and we wanna feel like everything's complete and everything's right and we just have that natural desire. But think about it, God has placed eternity in our hearts. What does it mean? It means we'll never find that fulfillment and satisfaction in earthly things. Those things can only be found in God. 
Now, we're in Ecclesiastes again today. We've been camped out in chapter three, talking about time and eternity. But the, as we think about the totality of this book in the Bible, the, the lesson of Ecclesiastes, the, the theme of this book, the storyline of this book is how Solomon, who was the king of Israel, went on a search to find meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction in life. That's what this whole book is about. Now, go back to chapter one. I want you to see he gives us at the beginning of the book his summary statement of where his search led him. And we're gonna see in just a moment all the things that he was looking for. In fact, let's just look at the things he was looking for and then we'll come back and look at the summary statement at the end. But in chapter number one, beginning in verse eight, he said, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. In other words, the eye wants to see more. I go outside today, I say, God, I thank you for my vision, but I can't see Minute Maid Park from here. I wish I could see farther. God, I thank you for my hearing, but I can't hear the people up in the top section right now, everything that they might be saying. And God, I, I wish that I could, but it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. Now look at verse nine. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. Every experience we had, somebody else already had it. Look in verse 14. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. This phrase, under the sun, was dominant. In, 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 it is dominant in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon said, I went out into the world, and I tried to find meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction in whatever I could under the sun, but it ended up to be vain. In fact, if you'll go back to verse number two of chapter one. Here's the summary statement I referenced earlier. He said, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does that word vanity means? It literally means futile. It literally, if you want the most literal meaning, it means nothing. Paul said after, or Solomon said, after my search for meaning in life, looking under the sun, you see, he should have been looking above the sun to God but he's looking under the sun at all these things. And he said, at the end of it all, here's what I found. Not only nothing, but I found the nothing part of nothing. Not only did I find the donut hole, but I found the middle part of that hole. I found nothing, the nothing part of nothing. And he said, it's like grasping for the wind. Trying to find satisfaction in life is like grasping for the wind. You go outside, none of us would even think about doing that. Oh, there goes the wind. Let me see if I can catch the wind and put it in my pocket. No, but he said, that's what it's like when you try to find satisfaction in life. Can't do it, why? Because you've got eternity in your heart. And since you have that God-sized void, that God-shaped void, things of this earth are not gonna do it. Verse 18, he says that he tried to find meaning in wisdom, in learning, in education, in knowledge, in reading a lot of books. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Isn't that true? The more we learn, the more we learn that we don't know, right? I mean, the more we learn how much there is yet to be learned. Now, in chapter two, I want us just to read verses one through 11, and I want you just to hear this. I want you to hear from the heart of Solomon as he's giving us a summation of his search for meaning, satisfaction, and fulfillment in this life. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also is vanity. 
So pleasure didn't do it for him. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine. So now he's turning to a little alcohol. He's going to calm his nerves while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven. There it is, under the sun, all the days of their lives. But the alcohol didn't do it, didn't meet the deep need. Deep need. I made my works great. I built myself houses and I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to provide the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived except for Jesus, richest man who ever lived. He had it all. Verse eight, I also gathered for myself silver and gold. And the special treasures of the kings and of the provinces, I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kind. So I became great, he said, and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that I had done with my hands and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under heaven. Solomon said, I looked everywhere. We're not even gotten into the passage that talks about how many wives he had, how many girlfriends he had, and all trying to meet the desire and fulfill the need in that way. We're not even discussing that, but that didn't work either. Now, go to chapter five. I'll show you a great verse in Ecclesiastes. And in verse number 10, now this is from the richest man who ever lived. However much money you have or however much money you want, take it from a man who has more money than all of us together will ever have combined. Chapter five, verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. It's nothing. It's chasing the wind. Somebody asked a wealthy man one time, how much money does it take to satisfy? And that man said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I've got a lot, but if I had a little bit more, then I guarantee you I would be satisfied. You know, we think about money. How much is a lot of money? Is a million dollars a lot? Is two a lot? I look up these athletes sometime. I Googled Tom Brady last week. He's worth $250 million. You think that's a lot of money? I think that's a lot of money. To me, that's a tremendous amount of money. But did you know the people who own those teams, they're not worth millions. They're worth billions. Go home today and Google the net worth of Jerry Jones of the Cowboys or the net worth of uh, the family that owns the Texans or the net worth of Jim Crane. These, these are in the, in the billions of dollars. And if you think that's a lot of money, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten billion dollars, those guys who own the sports teams, how about a Warren Buffett? The last time I looked, he's worth a hundred billion dollars. Now, I don't know if we have any billionaires in our church. If we do, I would like to become friends with you. (laughs) But I was thinking about, seriously, if I had $100 billion, now I think we would all agree that's a lot of money. Well, if I had $100 billion, 
what would I buy? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But probably not much. Because whatever I bought would only be a bigger and a newer version of what I already have. And if I can't be satisfied with what I have, I can't be satisfied with something newer and bigger and better. Why? Because I have eternity in my heart and eternity cannot be satisfied with earthly things, no matter how big, how much, how new, or how much better. It can only be satisfied with Jesus Christ. And yet Solomon says, man, I tried everything and I couldn't find the old song, we can't get no satisfaction. Solomon said, I can't get any satisfaction. That's why he put this verse in here. God has placed eternity in our hearts. There's something more than the earth can give to us. Now, you know what Solomon should have done? That's easy in life to say woulda, coulda, shoulda. And we've all probably played that game, but I'd rather play it with Solomon than with me. I'd rather look at his life and say, Solomon, what you should have done, instead of drinking all that liquor, instead of building all those houses, instead of pursuing all those women, instead of accumulating all those possessions, what you should have done was gone and got the Old Testament scroll from the book of Psalms, and what you should have done, Solomon, is read some of your daddy's Psalms, your daddy David's Psalms. And Solomon, maybe it would have been wise one night, instead of drinking that wine and chasing those women, if you'd have turned to Psalm 17. So let's go back there today. I want you to show, see a verse. Because Solomon, your dad, years earlier, explained where satisfaction is found. Now, David certainly had looked for some satisfaction in other places, and it broke his heart and left him disappointed. But later on, he said, hey, I've learned something. Look in chapter 17 and verse 15. David said, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. That is, I will see God's face. He's talking to God. I will see your face in righteousness. Now watch this next verse. I shall be satisfied. There's our word. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. What was David saying? David saying, you know what? I've learned something in life. And some of what I learned, I learned by my own sins and mistakes. But I've learned in life that the only person who can truly satisfy me is God himself. And he could have said to his son Solomon, as long as you keep looking for satisfaction in things under the sun, you'll be disappointed. But if you look above the sun, beyond the sun, over the sun, you'll be satisfied. It's interesting in this 17th Psalm, if you look up one verse, David refers to some of his contemporaries some of his peers, some of his friends, and how they have sought to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction. Here's what he said. With your hand from men, O Lord, from the men of the world, now watch this, who have their portion in this life. It's all about how much they have now. And whose belly you fill with hidden treasure. Now here comes the word satisfied again. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions to their babes. What's this mean? David was saying, God, there's some people down here who hadn't figured this out yet. And they still think that satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and purpose and a good self-esteem and all that comes from the things they possess and even from their families. Their satisfaction comes from their families, from their children. Now, there's nobody here, there's nobody here today closer than, to their family than I am. You, you may be as close, but I don't think anybody could be closer to their family than I am. I've been working with my dad almost 28 years. We talk every day. Sometimes we talk too many times throughout a, a day. 
but we're an extremely close family. But I've got enough sense to know this. My family, as much as I love them, they can't meet the deepest needs of my soul. I can't call my dad tonight and say, hey, dad, I need some peace and, and, and I need some contentment and I'm just asking you to tell me something to give me. He can't do that. Only God can meet that need. Now, as we think about all these things we, we're longing for, because we have eternity in our hearts, perfection, complete understanding of things we don't understand, fulfillment and satisfaction. What is the point of this sermon today? The point of this sermon is, since we have eternity in our hearts, we will never be able to find those needs met apart from Jesus Christ. He's the only perfect person out there. And he's the only one who can fill this void in our heart. Perfection is found in Jesus. The reason I doubted my salvation for so many years, I looked at myself when I went to Jesus, when I prayed, when I repented, when I confessed, when I called on him at my faith, and I said to myself, my prayer wasn't perfect, my faith wasn't perfect, my experience wasn't perfect, my repentance wasn't perfect, my confession wasn't perfect, nothing was perfect, and as long as the devil could keep me focused on my own imperfections, I had no peace, and then one day God stepped in and said, God, John, nothing in you is perfect, but if you look up, and if you look away, and if you look to Jesus, and if you'll trust in him, you will find in him the perfection you've been unable to make for yourself. And just like that, my life was changed. Why? Because now my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, Jesus. His wounds for me doth plead. Now, you still with me? Say amen. As we think about time and eternity, that's what Ecclesiastes is about. For those of us who are saved... We would agree that eternity, eternal life in heaven with God will be much better than time, right? In fact, for those of us who are saved, the only sadness, sickness, sorrow we'll ever know will be on this side of the grave. Because after our bodies die and we go to heaven, everything will be perfect. Now, for those who are not saved, the only happiness, fun, Joy, excitement, adrenaline rush that they'll ever get will be on this side of the grave. Because when they go to heaven, when they go to hell, rather, the fun's over. So I was thinking about this last night. From, a, from heaven's perspective, we could say it this way. Eternity has all the advantages over time. Now, again, if you're not saved, it's the opposite. Eternity has things that we'll never experience in time. And yet, time has one advantage over eternity. And I want to leave you with this thought today. Time, now, has one advantage over eternity. There's one thing that you can do in time that you won't be able to do in eternity. John, what is it? What is the advantage of time over eternity? In time, people have an opportunity to make peace with God. And when we step out into eternity, it's too late to do that. The time is now to make that decision. Now, one other verse and we'll be done. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, I want you to see this verse. You need to mark it in your Bible. I came across this verse 10, 15 years ago. I don't even think I knew it was in the Bible. Or if I did, I hadn't paid any attention to it. Chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes, verse 3, but only the second half of the verse, the B part of the verse. Notice what Solomon says. And if a tree falls 
to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. Isn't that true? You're out in the wilderness, you look across the way, you see a tree tottering, and now you see a tree fall, bam, the tree hits the ground. Solomon said, remember this, whether that tree falls to the south or to the north, wherever it falls, wherever it hits the ground, that's where it will lie. That tree will not get up and start growing again, or it will not get up and fall in another direction. Look at it again, the end of that verse. In the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. Now, why did Solomon, why is that in the Bible? Is God trying to tell us what happens to a tree when it falls in the wilderness? Is that all that it? No. God's using that as an illustration, as an analogy. And God is saying to us through that verse, just like a tree, when it falls to the south or it falls to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. So it is with human beings. When the end of the journey happens, when death comes, and we might say it this way, whether a person falls to the south or whether a person falls to the north, Wherever they fall, there they will lie. The person who falls to the south, lost without God, and goes to hell, there they will lie. There's no more opportunity. They can't say, God, I don't like it here. I reconsider. I want to now get saved. The, the day of opportunity is over. Why? Because in eternity, you don't have an opportunity to get saved. That's only in time. The person who falls to the north, saved up to heaven, fate is forever sealed. I'm asking you this today. If today were the day, if your life is a tree, and today is the day that your tree fell, would it fall to the south without God and go down? Would it fall to the north with God, saved, and go up? Because wherever you fall, there you will lie, and the day of opportunity will have ceased, now think about this, and will have ceased forever and forever and forever. Why? Because eternity is a place, but it is a place of an unending amount of time. With our heads bowed and eyes closed today, if your life were a tree, and today your tree fell, which way would it fall? To the south and go down? To the north? And go up, well, whichever way it falls, wherever it falls, there it will lie for all eternity. Today, if you would say, John, I believe God brought me to this service providentially. God had me to hear this message. God had me now while I'm still living in the realm of time, while I'm still living in the season of opportunity. God today brought me here so that I could seize the moment and take advantage of this opportunity and so that today I could be saved so that I could leave this room knowing that when the tree of my life one day falls, it will fall to the north and I will go up and I will be with God forever. We saw people, we saw one saved in the first service and in this service today, we wanna give you that same opportunity. If you don't know for certain that Jesus is in your life, pray this prayer right now, Lord Jesus, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. I need to prepare myself for my physical death and for eternity. Please forgive my sins, all of them. Come right now and live in my heart. Take up residence there. Begin the process of making me the person you want me to be. 
Lord, I ask you to save me and I trust you to do it. I trust you. Tell him that. That'll seal your salvation. Welcome to my heart, Lord. Begin now, now, right now, to make me the person that you want me to be.